Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, no, we're through with that, at least for right now. Okay. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And in just a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 1. For years, I've had a conviction that what we really need in our churches is for the presence of God to show up. Now, when I say that, a lot of people kind of say, what do you mean by that? I believe in the omnipresence of God. I believe God is everywhere in his universe, and I understand that. I don't comprehend it, but I get it. But I also know that Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. When he said in their midst, he was saying as personal, as close as you can be. There's something that happens when God's people gather together in his name. It's something unique. Now, if you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives within your physical body. But there's something about all of us as Christians gathering together, and it doesn't matter if it's in a room like this or under a tree in Africa. I have been in Africa, and I've preached to hundreds of people under just a few trees, and you know what? God was just as much there as He was in this room. It's not the building so much. It's the gathering of all the saints, every one of whom, if Jesus is your Lord, you are the temple of the living God. And when we come together, it's just like God shows up in His manifest presence. And nowadays we talk about how much we need God in government, and we do. I pray that God will come and be in more politicians' lives and in more governmental areas. I pray for that daily. I pray that God will be in our schools if we ever need it. The headwaters of truth, not to be polluted with lies of the enemy, but to be refreshed with the Word of God. It's today. Our children need to be taught that there is a God, that there is a Bible, that there is one Savior, Jesus Christ. So school is important. We need more of that in our schools. No doubt about it. We need the presence of God in our schools. But I want to say this to you. We need the presence of God in our churches. There's a church in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus is on the outside knocking on the door trying to get in his own church. It's the church of Laodicea. He said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I'll fellowship with him. What he's talking about, really, the primary thing he's talking about is not coming into somebody's heart when they get saved, although you can take that verse and get that out of it. But I want to tell you, the, the, the immediate text he's talking about, I want back in my church. Did you know that you can have church without the Lord? But it's not real church. You can go through the motions. You can sing some song. You can get up and talk and give some money and walk out and God not be within a million miles of it. And that's what's going on in a lot of churches. And I'm not saying this to try to lift us up, but I am saying this. I want the presence of God in this place. I don't believe that the main thing, look, we invite people to come to Bellevue. We invite anybody, everybody, come on to Bellevue. That's fine. And we go out and we inv I do it every week. I invite people to Christ every week. I invite people to Bellevue every week. But listen to me. The main thing is not how many people are we inviting people in here. The main thing is we want God in this place. So that when people come, they'll say, there is a God among them. It's not just a preacher. It's not just a room with a lot of seats. God is in that place. And if you can't say that, when you leave here, we have failed. I want to tell you something. 
You are not the audience, and this is not a stage, and this is not a play, and we are not actors and actresses. You are not the audience. God is the audience. God is the audience. We are living and breathing and worshiping a holy God. So we're all on the platform in the same way, worshiping God, saying, oh God, come down in my situation. Oh God, come down in my life. Come down in my marriage. Come down in my family. Come down in my job. Come down in my children. Come down and touch this place we call Memphis, Tennessee. God, come down and be with us. And when he shows up, you don't have to wonder. He's there and you know it. There was a time Luke talks about it in Luke chapter 3. When there had not been a bona fide, genuine prophet of God for 400 years. 400 years. They could just read the scripture, and that's fine, nothing wrong with that. But there was no man of God, no prophet of God who said, Thus saith the Lord. For four centuries, It just blacked out. There was nothing there until John the Baptist. Malachi was the last 400 years until John the Baptist is raised up. And I want to tell you, when he came in power, he only had a six-month-long ministry. But I got news for you. God did more in that six months than he did in most preachers entire lives. And he was filled with the Spirit of God, full of the Word of God. And when he showed up, they came from north, south, east, west, out into the desert to hear this long-haired man that was eating literally grasshoppers. And he had no fancy clothes on. He wasn't dressed real nice. He had on a camel hair garment. Have you ever smelled a camel? That's one of the nastiest things you'll ever smell in your life. I've been to Israel 15 times, and our people love to get on the camels, but I hate the way they smell when they get off. Amen? Camels are nasty. And he had on this camel coat, and he was eating grasshoppers and saying, Thus saith the Lord, but the people flocked to him because he had the fire of God on his life. They had not heard anything like that before. Their parents hadn't heard anything like that. Their grandparents, their great, 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 great grandparents hadn't heard anything like that. Nobody had heard anything like that for four centuries. And this guy lit the place up. Why? He was preparing the way of the Lord. God was about to show up. Let's look at what happens when God shows up. I want a church where God shows up. Amen? I want a church that God comes to. Amen? Amen. Number one, when God shows up, sinners are powerless. There's no, we're all sinners and there's not one sinner that can stop the presence of God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonius and Lysanias. Some of you are out there thinking, how does he know how to pronounce all those words? I don't, I just say them fast and you don't know the difference, amen? <laughs> he was tetrarch of Abilene, I'm hooked on phonics, amen. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So here Luke mentions seven leaders, five political leaders, two priestly leaders, and all seven were sinful and literally corrupt. And yet God showed up. Even though the leaders were corrupt, God showed up. Look at the first five, the Roman politicians. Verse 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, who is he? The second Roman emperor. He followed Caesar Augustus, who was his stepfather. Caesar Augustus was corrupt and sinful as well. Augustus was the Roman emperor at the time of the birth of Christ. He's the one that decreed that there be a census taken of all the earth, and that purpose was to 
the main part. He didn't even know it. His, according to Proverbs 21.1, his heart, the king's heart was like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. God turned it wherever he wanted, and God had to get Joseph and Mary, Mary pregnant with Jesus, had to get her out of Nazareth, 70-something miles south to Bethlehem because Micah chapter 5 had said that the Messiah in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 would be born not up in Nazareth but in Bethlehem. And so he gave the decree to the king and the king because of that Joseph and Mary came down and the baby was born exactly where the Bible said he would be born. That's Augustus. That was the guy before Tiberius Caesar. And now Tiberius Caesar who reigned most of Jesus' life reigned from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D., he shows up and he is the king during the time of Jesus being on this earth. And he was a wicked man. In fact, when they, he was known as Tiberius the tyrant. And when he died, nobody celebrated his life or his death Rather, they chanted to, to the Tiber with Tiberius. The Tiber was a river. Now, the way where I come from, they say, chunk his body in the river and let's move on. He was a sinner. Four more politicians from Rome. Verse 1 goes on to talk about the second one. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Now, who is Pontius Pilate? Oh, yeah, he's the guy before whom Jesus stood and he is the one that condemned Jesus to be crucified. Before that, we read in Luke chapter 13 that he was a very corrupt, cold-hearted leader. He literally sent his troops into a Jewish synagogue and literally not only killed the people, but offered them up as a sacrifice. The Bible says, Luke, Jesus is speaking in uh, Luke 13, 1, Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifices. Luke is speaking rather. Pilate mixed their blood with their sacrifices. Pontius Pilate also had Jesus crucified. A very sinful leader. And then verse 1 also the number 3 Roman leader here. Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. This is not Herod the Great. This is the stepson of Herod the Great. The son of Herod the Great rather. Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was known for a lot of different things. He is the one that stole his brother's wife. Philip was his brother. He stole Philip's wife, Herodias. And he also is the one who had John the Baptist arrested. He's also the one who executed John the Baptist. We read about that in Matthew 14. He's also the one who later on mocked Jesus when Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to Herod because he knew that Jesus was from Herod's district. Pontius Pilate sent him there. Herod Antipas made fun of Jesus when Jesus wouldn't say a word to him. We read in Luke 23, 11, then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. They were not righteous. John and Jesus were righteous, but Herod was not. And then number four, Philip, the brother of Herod, Antipas. His brother Philip, the Bible says in verse 1, was tetrarch, leader of the fourth is what that means, of the nation, of the region, of Italy and Trachonitis. He was the one whose wife left him for Herod Antipas. He ruled his region of Italy and Trachonitis from 4 B.C. to A.D. 33. He built a place that we go to every time we go to Israel because it's where Peter said to Jesus, "You, when Jesus said, who does men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where was that? Caesarea Philippi. Who's that named after? Philip. Under the Caesar line. And like his brother, Philip was sinful. And then there's Lysanias, number five. We don't really know much about him. He's Tetrarch, ruler of the fourth from Abilene. But we know that more than likely he was just like the rest of them, corrupt, 
and sinful. Now these are the five Roman politicians, Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias. They were known for their vileness, for their sinfulness. But it wasn't just the politicians who were corrupt at the time that John the Baptist came. It was also the two Jewish priests that were prominent. It says also, verse 2, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. This does not mean that they were ruling at the same time. Annas was the older of the two between Annas and Caiaphas. Annas ruled, uh, we know about him from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He ruled back in A.D. 7 through A.D. 14 when Jesus was just a boy. But at the time that we're reading about today, when John the Baptist is about to preach, Caiaphas was the high priest in office at that time. Annas was still the most influential priest. He was the power behind the scene. And we know that because it was to Annas that Jesus was taken when he was arrested first. They brought him to Annas. We read about that in John chapter 18, verse 13. And he tried Jesus even before Caiaphas, who was the reigning priest at that time. Both of these men corrupt. So you have all seven of these sinful, corrupt leaders who are in charge. And yet we read in the last part of verse 2, the Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Three miracles. The Word of God came during a very corrupt political and religious time. How many of you know that regardless of who is in politics and who is in religion, God is on His throne? God can do whatever God wants to do anytime God wants to do it, and He doesn't ask any politician or any preacher. He's God. Another miracle was that he came as the son of Zacharias. If you know the story in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth were very old and she became pregnant when he was just when they were just very old and they were beyond the, the time when they should have been able to have children. It was a miracle. That's what he was saying when he said son of Zacharias. And it was also in the wilderness. John was preaching in the wilderness. The Word of God came to him in the wilderness. Nowadays, people will tell you about church growth. Oh, one of the most, and by the way, most, I don't say most, many of the people that write church growth books have never pastored a church. It's real easy to talk about it if you don't know anything about it. Amen? And so they'd say, oh, if you're going to have a lot of attenders, you've got to have location, location, location. i got news for you. That is a lie. That is a lie. That is a lie. I want to tell you why. How many of you have ever gone to a really good restaurant that was not in a good location? Please raise your hand right now. Anybody out there? Listen, I have driven to alleys and back fields. I went to a place up in Gibson County called Fuchs Restaurant, and I literally drove out into a cow field, cows on either side of me going back there, and I ate catfish until I was about to pop. Amen? And that was one of the best, and you couldn't even hardly get in. The place was covered up. Why? People don't go because of location to a restaurant. They go because of the food. And you listen to me. People don't come to a church because of location. It's because the Spirit of God is there and the Word of God is there. And people come because of God's presence. That's why they come. That's why they come. You don't have to have a fancy location. You don't have to have 6,000 seats. All you've got to do is have God and let God show up. and People will come. The Word of God came to John. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that when God shows up, sinners are powerless. No politician can send revival. No politician can stop the presence of God in revival. We don't lean on leaders. We lean on God. We lean on God. Well, there's a second thing. When God shows up, servants will preach. When the Spirit of God, the presence of God shows up, God's going to call somebody to share the Word of God, and they're going to do it. John the Baptist did. We read in verses 3 and following that he was the first prophet, like I said, in 400 years. And there's this spiritual drought for the Word of God. And when he showed up, he was a preaching machine. How did he preach? Well, 
when God shows up, his servants preach evangelistically. Look at verse 3. He came into the, all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was saying, you need to repent. Messiah is on his way. The Christ, the anointed one is coming and you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and to show that you've truly believed in the Messiah that he's coming, you need to be baptized. Doesn't that sound a lot like our message nowadays? You need to repent. You need to come to Christ. And once you're saved and you repent and believe in Jesus, you need to be baptized to tell people that you belong to him. Oh, when God shows up, servants will preach evangelistically. They will also, when God shows up, his servants will also preach scripturally. Look at verses 4 through 6. John's whole ministry was the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. We read here in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. The rough road smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. The word of the Lord came to John. He had already been predicted. Isaiah predicted John the Baptist way back, hundreds of years before his birth in the Old Testament. And when he came, he was preaching the Word of God. He was the result of prophetic Scripture. And when he showed up, he preached a prophetic Word. He was the sole preacher crying in the wilderness. There was no other preacher of God on the whole earth that was preaching at that time. Jesus was on the earth, but he hadn't started preaching yet. He is the only one that had the Word of God. He was the only one that was preaching the Word of God. There were people that were reading the Word. There were people that were priests and they were trying to do the Word, but they didn't have the anointing of God. They didn't have the true Word of God. He said when he came, he was preaching like nobody else Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Christ is coming. Straighten out every crooked road. Fill up every sinful valley. Bring low every haughty, proud, arrogant mountain of dead religion. Pave the way for Christ. And make sure everyone is ready for the message of salvation in Jesus. That's what he preached. And people came from the north, south, east, and west Oh, he preached scripturally. He also preached prophetically. Oh, he got in their business. He, he started really preaching to them. Verse 7, so he began saying to the crowds, you who were going out to be baptized by him. Now, listen to this. You brood of vipers, literally you, you barrel of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? Now, I'm going to say I've been preaching for 40 years, but I have never gone up to the baptismal candidates and said, hello, brood of vipers. I have never gotten up in the pulpit and said, brood of vipers. At least I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> John was bold. He was a prophetic preacher. He was like Elijah. He was like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Haggai. We think we would love to have these guys in church. I want to tell you, I don't know if we could handle a week of John the Baptist or not. They were bold. Listen to what he said, verse 8. Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. The Jews thought they were on their, they were okay because they were kin biologically. They were related to Abraham. Look at me, biological relatives don't get you into God's presence or God's heaven, all right? You don't get biologically born into the kingdom of God. you got to be born again by the Spirit. We have Abraham for our fathers, for I say to you that from these very rocks, these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You need, more than the, you need to be more than children of Abraham. You need to be children of the kingdom of God. You need to come to the Messiah, and His name is Jesus he said, if you don't, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Look at verse 9. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the roots of the trees. It is time. It is decision time. 
So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a reference to hell. That's what our world needs today. We need preachers that will preach prophetically. Oh, America needs some prophets of God to preach prophetically. Not tickle ears, but say, thus saith the Lord, and let the chips fall where they may. His servants will preach prophetically when God shows up. And when God shows up also, His servants will preach applicably. Look at verse 10. And the crowds were questioning Him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, here's what you should do. Here's the application. The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? Now, I want to tell you something. That's every preacher's dream for people to walk in the room and say, preacher, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? Three times. What shall we do? And if a preacher only explains the text and illustrates the text, he has missed the preaching. He must also apply the text and tell people what the Bible says we need to do. That's what preachers should do. John the Baptist preached and made specific application. If somebody's hungry, don't just stare at them. If you've got some food, give them some food. If somebody doesn't have enough clothing and you've got more than one pair of pants, I grew up, it was britches. I mean, how many of you know what a britches is? Anybody know what that is? Yeah. We wore britches in Dyersburg. If you had more than one pair of britches, you give them to you give a pair to them. That's what he said. Give your clothes away if you've got more than one pair and they don't have any. Don't be greedy with your money. Be content with what you have. And don't tell a lie. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And he said, you need to do this. Nowadays, everybody wants you to say, well, when you apply the Scripture, just say, we need to do this. We, I got news for you. I don't like to do that that much because I know that I need it. I'm not saying I've got it all together, but I want to tell you something. I learned a long time ago that when I say we need to pray, I want to tell you what you're thinking out there. He's talking to that guy over there. But when I say you need to pray, you say he's talking to me. And look at me. I'm not just talking to the guy behind you. I'm talking to you right now. God wants you to apply the Scripture the prophetic you. You need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to tithe. You need to be faithful to your family and your spouse. You need to not tell a lie. You need to tell the truth. You don't need to be gluttonous, and you don't need to be a drunkard. You need to be disciplined in your food intake and in your drink intake. You need to make sure that you are telling people about Jesus Christ. You need to walk with God, and you need to trust in Him. Even in crazy times like 2020, you need to walk with God Almighty. That's the kind of application people have to have if they're going to make it through. Hey, let me give you one more. You need to be encouraged. You need to have God putting courage in you all the time. We all need that. So, he preached applicably. He also, when God shows up, his servants will preach Christ. Look at verse 15 and following. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming. Oh, there's the one. One is coming. He's talking about Jesus. One is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Notice the comparison. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with living water, the Holy Spirit, and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. People start hearing John. All these people coming. They hadn't heard a prophetic word for centuries. They said, maybe he's the Messiah. He said, no, I'm not the Messiah. 
I'm not the Messiah. But one is coming. One is coming. You know what? He was the forerunner. He was the one blocking so the other one would get the touchdown. Now, this illustration is going to break down because Jesus is really the one who blocks. He blocks through some. He's, he's, he's working through John. But when I was playing football, I want to tell you something. I was an offensive lineman, and I, I don't know how many times I would pull around and I would run over somebody that weighed 200 something pounds, and this little back behind me, this little guy, would go in and dance and make around, you know, and like he made the touchdown. But if I hadn't hit that guy, you know what? Hello. That guy that I hit would have demolished that little bitty running back, all right? What was I doing? Paving the way. Now, here's where it breaks down. John paved the way for Jesus. Jesus could have paved his own way, but John paved the way for Jesus so that when Jesus showed up, people were already listening to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. There had been a desert, a spiritual desert, all across Israel for 400 years. And he was preparing the way. He said, look, I'm not the one. I'm not the one. Don't you like it? When we preach and we teach and we say, look, don't, it's not me, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. We're pointing to Jesus. We're not trying to impress somebody with our intellect. We're not trying to impress somebody with our spiritual lives. We just say, oh, it's all about him. I'm not worth I baptize with water. Oh, but that's the one. Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I, I can only barely just, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. He's such a great God. And, and I want to tell you, he's going to gather up all the wheat and put it into his barn in heaven, and he's going to burn up all the chaff in hell. It's not me. It's Jesus. If you leave here talking about Bellevue, then we have failed in this worship service. If you leave here talking about how good the music was, we have failed in this worship service. If you leave here talking about how good the preaching is, we have failed in this worship service. But if you leave here talking about how good and great Jesus is, bless the Lord, we have succeeded. It is not about Bellevue. It is not about me. And you know what? It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. That's what all we do when God shows up. When God shows up. And then, when he shows up, his servants will preach frequently. Look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. That is, many other times. John preached all the time. He probably preached three or four times, maybe five times a day. He was like the guys like Wesley and Whitfield back in the 1700s in England. When they went and they would go on their horses and they would ride, John Wesley rode 250,000 miles all over England preaching the gospel. They'd get up in the morning at 4 o'clock because the sun rose at 4 o'clock, and they would get out and they would pray with the Lord till about 5. But by 5.30, they were in the field somewhere preaching, and they would be preaching to many times 10,000 people out here. When George Whitfield came to America in the 1700s, he came to Georgia, and he starts preaching up north. He gets up into Philadelphia. He meets a man do you know who it was? Anybody know his name? Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin was a publisher, and Benjamin Franklin started publishing his sermons, and Benjamin Franklin made a ton of money off of him. Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian. Benjamin Franklin was a deist. He didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. His parents did. They were Puritans. But Benjamin Franklin did not he was not anti-Jesus, but he was not pro-Jesus. He was just pro-God. He never went to church and very immoral. But he followed this preacher around, George Whitfield, and he saw him preach to 30,000 people at one time in Philadelphia, and people got saved left and right. God was moving in revival. And Benjamin Franklin said, I stood all the way at the back, and I heard every word that that man said because God was on him. He didn't know God, but he knew when a preacher was anointed by God. Even the lost people know the difference between somebody that's real and somebody that's not. John preached frequently. I want to tell you, I, I about 
had a come apart one time. I heard this preacher complaining because he had to preach 30 times a year. Bless his little heart. Good gracious. Oh, when revival shows up and God shows up, we're going to preach frequently. When God shows up, servants will preach. Now, let me just give you the last two very quickly. You're not going to like number three, probably. It's not something that we should just desire, but it is factual. It always happens. When God shows up, saints are persecuted. Look at verses 19 and 20. But when Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of the fourth, ruler over Judea, was reprimanded by him, by John the Baptist, because of Herodias, his brother's wife. That was Philip's wife that Herod stole. Because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. I don't know what it was like, but I have a sanctified imagination. I do know exactly what John the Baptist said to Herod that made Herod lock him up. I'll share that with you in just a moment. It's from Mark chapter 6, verse 18. I believe with all my heart. John didn't ask anybody. He just walked in to the room one day, and there's Herod on his throne, and there's Herodias at his right hand. I believe with all my heart. If it didn't take place like this, it was something very near this because it got him arrested. He walked right up in there, knew that God had told him to go there. It was not self-righteousness, spirit-filled man with the Word of God in his heart, camel clothing. He walked in there probably barefoot. He walked right up to Herod. And I believe with all my heart, John the Baptist stuck his finger right in the face of the most powerful man in Judea. And then I think he pointed his other hand to his adulterous wife who had left his brother, her husband, to be with this man. Can't make this stuff up. And I believe here's, here's how it went. Put the verse of Mark up on the screen. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful. I think he put his finger right and said, it is not lawful for you to have, and then I think he looked at Herodias, your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And he got imprisoned. You know what happened. Herodias was immoral. Do you know why you don't need to be immoral? Because it sets your children up for the same thing. That's one reason, one good reason not to be immoral. Because Herodias' daughter did a lewd dance in front of Herod Antipas. And just like nowadays, when women do that, it drives men nuts. I want to say this to you. Lust will make a man do things that he never thought he would do. You don't have to say amen. I know. Don't. How many of you believe that? I did another service. Look, here's how they did. <laughs> Herod said, I will give you half of my kingdom. A lot like the people who dance like that today in these places. Men go nuts. She said to her mother, what should I ask for? And that hateful woman said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. She went and asked, and Herod had to do it because he was so, he would have been embarrassed in front of all his guests. And even though he liked to hear John preach, he had him executed. I don't know what's going to happen in America, and you don't either. But I want to tell you something. For decades and decades and decades, America has been turning away from God. 
there has really never been a time when America was all in for God. There have been a few times when there were great revivals in this country. But I want to tell you something. I love this country, but there is so much sinfulness and wickedness in this country. Billy Graham said, if God doesn't discipline and punish America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Billy Graham said that. There's going to come persecution. You say, how do you know? Jesus said so. John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, read these next words with me out loud. Here we go. They will also persecute you. If they keep my, kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now listen to what he said in Acts 14, 22. He just led a bunch of people to the Lord. Paul did, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith, and saying, Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's not going to be easy. We're going to be persecuted. And John said it, Mark, or, or Paul said it so clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the last book, the last letter that he wrote before he died, before Rome and Caesar, Nero, had his head cut off. He said this to Timothy, his favorite preacher boy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Saints will be persecuted when God shows up. So what happens when God shows up? Well, sinners are powerless. You can't stop the will and the Word of God. Servants will preach. You can't help but preach. You've got fire in your bones. Nobody can shut you up. Even if they throw you in jail, you're going to preach in the jail. Start a jail ministry. And saints will be persecuted. But the best part of it all is this. Last point. When God shows up, God's Son, Jesus, will be praised. Amen? Oh, look at these last two verses, 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. Why in the world would He be baptized? He didn't have anything to repent about. No, He was not repenting of sin. He was sinless. But He was giving us an example. Jesus was showing us what we should do to be one of his followers. Baptism doesn't save you, but it does show that you are saved. It's like putting on a wedding ring. Wedding rings don't make you married, but they show that you are. That's what baptism is. And then the Bible says in verse 21, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. I love that. While he was praying, heaven was opened. Do you want to live under an open heaven? Then start praying. God doesn't open the heavens for prayerless people, prayerless churches, prayerless families, prayerless wives and husbands, prayerless preachers, prayerless denominations, God's heaven doesn't open up for them. But when we start praying, heaven opens up and we start seeing what God can do rather than what man can do. And then not only did heaven open, but the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. The Holy Spirit only comes on people that pray. The Holy Spirit only comes on churches that pray. The Holy Spirit only comes on nations that pray. We need the Holy Spirit. We need God to open the windows of heaven above us. And then the voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. People hear the word of God because they pray. When you talk to God, he talks to you. And when Jesus prayed, the heavens were opened. The spirit of God came down and anointed him in bodily form. And then the Bible says, God spoke to Jesus these encouraging words. You're my son. Son, I'm so proud of you. No child in the world would not want to hear that from their father. And just before Jesus steps into the wilderness for 40 days to fast, just before he is to be tempted by the devil, God the Father opens the windows of heaven because his boys down there praying and obeying him. He opens the windows of heaven and God Almighty anoints his son with the Holy Spirit afresh. And then he says, boy, I am proud of you. Jesus was being praised by his Father. And when we preach... And when God shows up, the only one that's going to be exalted and praised is Jesus Christ. I just pray that God will show up, don't you? I'm not saying that God's not here. I'm not, but how many of you think we can always have more of the presence of God than we have? Amen? I mean, I, I really want it to where people come in and they say, you know what? Huh. 
The Lord's in here. Did you ever see that uh, movie called War Room? Remember at the end of the movie when that guy comes in to buy that little lady's house, that precious saint, she had prayed in this closet, this room, this little bitty room for years and years and years, and this guy that was buying their house, looking at their house, he was a preacher, he walked in that room, he took around, he said, whoa, totally empty room as far as man could see, but God was all in it because her prayers had been there. He walks out of that room, he walks back into that room, he comes out and he said, we'll take this house, (laughs) we'll take this house, I don't care what the price is, we'll take it because God's here. Don't you want people, when they leave here, and say, you know what? God's in that place. Don't you want God to show up? I don't know if there's ever been a more divided time in my lifetime than we are right now in America. When I was a boy in the 60s, oh, there was rioting and looting and burning in the street. It was terrible because of the Vietnam War and many other things. But there was a time in this nation when I believe it was even worse than it is now. People divided. It was in the 1850s and the 1860s, right at the time of the Civil War. And right in the midst of that, there was a senator who said, we need to have a day of prayer and fasting in America. So he sent the idea to the president, Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln made the decree that there would be a day of prayer and fasting, and would be in May. He wrote this in April of 19, or 1863. This is Abraham Lincoln wrote this. It is the duty of nations. Why don't you read it with me? Let's read it together. We'll read it slow. It is the duty of nations, as well as of men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts, that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated, I love this phrase, intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings, no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. Abraham Lincoln, put that back up very quickly. March chapter 30, or March 30. (laughs) I'm in the Bible, okay. March 30, 1863. Right, as my daddy would say, smack dab in the middle of the Civil War. I don't want another civil war, do you? I want God to show up, don't you? We need to be praying for our nation, but we need to be praying for our church. God will show up in the church, and it will spill out into the nation. It will spill out into the nation. 
And I'm praying that he'll show up. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would bless our church with your presence. And I pray that you will bless us with the fact that we know that when you show up, sinners are powerless, that there will be servants preaching the gospel. Saints will be persecuted, but God's Son, Jesus, will be praised. Oh God, come in your manifest presence, we pray in Jesus' name. If that's your prayer, say amen. Let's all stand up. We're going to sing one final worship song, and then we'll be dismissed. If today you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, He loves you, but you're a sinner, you've broken God's laws, and the wages of your sin is spiritual death, which means separation from God, but God gave a cure from separation from Him. When He sent Jesus to us and He died on the cross, He bore the penalty of our sin. He was buried, but God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says he's alive and he'll give you salvation. You have to repent. It's like John said, you've got to turn from your sin. You've got to turn toward the Lord. And then you've got to believe that Jesus died and paid your sin debt on the cross and believe that he rose from the dead to give you eternal life. And then you've got to receive him into your life. And the moment you do that, you'll be saved. Would you be saved? Someone in the balcony, would you be saved today? On this main floor up here in the front or in the back, would you be saved today? Would you come to the Lord? What I want to ask you to do, we're going to have pastors here in the front, and they'll be glad to lead you to faith in Christ. I'd like to lead you in a prayer right now, and if you'd like to do that, just close your eyes just for a moment. If you'd like to pray and receive Christ, do it right now. Just say, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me. I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. You're the only Savior. I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin. I turn to you. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I call on your name. I receive you. Save me right now, Jesus Christ. Come into my life. And by faith, I thank you that you have. In Jesus' name, amen.